Greetings and welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you find value and meaning in my podcast project here. And if you've been listening to Studs, and if you've learned something, and if you've taken some solace in our conversations, then let me give you the chance to give a little bit back. Head over to patreon.com slash studs and see what you can get for supporting this year's podcast. No pressure. You're always welcome to take a free ride. But for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help keep studs going strong. And there's a dude out there who's doing his part to help keep this podcast project going strong. Carl Hauk, thank you, thank you, thank you for becoming a patron of the Studs Podcast. Carl Hauk was a student of mine way back when. We've kept in touch on and off in the 15 or 20 years that have passed since we shared a classroom together. And I've always been so impressed by him. He went into teaching for some time and he's since pivoted out of teaching towards some innovative and creative projects. And it emboldens me and it brings me great joy to learn that there are people out there like Carl who are diving into these explorations of working lives and who are willing to support me in this effort. Thank you, Carl. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. And yo, if the time isn't right for you to donate to Studs, I get it. We're good. But you could do this. Just tell a pal or two about this podcast. Maybe recommend an episode that you have reason to believe they would love. And you might want to link them to this episode. Because in this episode, I'm taking a deep dive into the work of Kayla Ming. Kayla Ming is a shining, tide-eyed ball of dreadlocked intensity. She's also a nurse. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know I've already had on an ICU nurse, Edlyn Bowsen, and a surgical nurse, Micah Mrozinski. But Kayla here, well, Kayla took a different path and brought her skills and experiences as an emergency room nurse to, <laughs> of all places, prison. Kayla discusses why she loved prison nursing, but why she had to stage a prison break, hop in an RV, and become a traveling nurse. Kayla's devoted her life to healing others. And along the way, she sought to heal herself. Please stay tuned to our post-interview discussion to learn how Kayla's personal traumas have inspired her to serve others. And after Kayla and I dive into the tough stuff, I got a special treat for y'all. My friend, I have the honor to wrap up this special episodes of Studs with the title track from a hot new release by the Chicago trio Sun Jacket, Sun Jacket is the project of a dude who went to high school with Kayla and who happens to be the aforementioned Studs patron, Carl Hauk. I've linked to Sun Jacket's new album in the show notes. All right, kids. Studs dives into the back half of season five with an extraordinary episode. So join me for Kayla. Stick around for yet more Kayla and then let Sun Jacket take Kayla and I back to Chicago.
Kayla Ming, welcome to Studs. I've been hoping to have you on the program for some time now. Thank you so much for being here. How do you describe what you do? Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the interest. How do I describe what I do? The life of a nurse. Well, uh, if you want to be pretty blunt and casual, sometimes my life just seems kind of like putting out fires in an orderly fashion, trying to make some sense of normalcy about it. I often work in, you know, as we'll discuss, but emergency room addiction treatment. And you just kind of are exposed to chaos or the equivalent of someone's worst day. I see it all the time, really just trying to navigate, you know, the difference between the science, the social science, the psychology, the whole package, and just being able to try to help people get the best version of their life, I guess, and doing the best that I can in that role. Yeah. Now, Kayla, currently you're a bit of a nursing nomad, deeply committed to service, but not committed to any particular institutions. And we'll talk about what that means a little bit later. But for now, can you just kind of speed walk us through some of the nursing posts you've pursued in your career? As you know, I grew up an athlete my whole life, always interested in human body, the way it worked. Started out in high school wanting to do personal training, physical therapy. Then I had tons of surgeries from all my basketball injuries and realized that stuff sucked. (laughs) You know, like I don't want to tell people to do this stuff that I hate doing. You know, then I thought about being a PE teacher, combining my love of teaching and helping and sports and athleticism. Um, And then after college, I actually graduated just with communications and Spanish degree. Playing college basketball, you don't have the luxury to really explore. You have to declare a major. And at that time, honestly, I didn't have an interest in medicine, but I still really loved, again, just the human body and the way it worked. After I got out of college, I took this CPR first aid AED class and it just piqued my interest. I loved it. Things kind of propelled from there where EMT went into the city. Then I got right into paramedic school, did that at a level one trauma center, worked in the emergency room at that level one trauma center while I was working as a paramedic on a private ambulance. And then once I became a nurse, I worked two years in Lake Forest emergency room, really wanted to learn a lot more about healing and maintenance of patients. So I was lucky enough to be able to learn in the ICU for about a year. And then for various reasons, I decided it really wasn't necessarily my place to be in corporate medicine, if you will. And we can discuss that. That's when I actually jumped into the Kenosha County Jail, worked there for about a year then transitioned over to the addiction treatment program. I was working those simultaneously. And then COVID hit and that kind of turned the world upside down. But now to my current life of traveling nursing, mostly in the emergency room. So ER is really where I've gotten a lot of my roots and my experience. But that career path is always evolving as my soul is. Hmm. Now, you were my sociology student many, many years ago. Good times. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was fond of you then, and I'm fond of you now. I have really splendid memories of you as a student. I also, I should say, have splendid memories of you as a student athlete. You had this beautiful jump shot. <laughs> you were like this super intense person, a super intense thinker. (laughs) Your empathy levels were, and I'm sure they still are, really high. Like in addition to my academic interest in sociology, I have, and I know we share, you know, real 
human rights concerns with regards to American prisons. And if it's cool with you, can we talk a bit about what drove you to become a nurse at a prison? When I was working as a nurse in the emergency room and ICU, I was also simultaneously, I'm a yoga instructor as well. And so I was just finishing up my yoga teacher training, my 200 hour training. And, you know, I was really looking for a way to get started with that. And I had a buddy at a t- at the time who was volunteering in the Lake County jail, teaching yoga to the men. So of course I was like, dude, you got to get me hooked up with this. And it was as easy as that. I dealt with one of the coordinators there for the activities programs. Of course they had to do all the background check and whatnot, but I started teaching as a yoga instructor there every Friday. I volunteered. I came in and worked with the women and between my desire to help and teach and my own personal growth path and what yoga does for me and just being able to kind of be there and just the feedback that I got, like, you know, I'd be right in the middle of the pod. Like there's someone flooding their cell there. There's someone in lockdown right there. There's everyone else eating and doing hair. And I'm in the middle of the jail life teaching yoga class. If you want to participate, come on. And so that got me literally into the jail fast forward. Okay. You know, I did that for a while. It became quite cumbersome with working nights and, you know, I had to step away from volunteering there. So like I had mentioned, when I got out of the ICU of Lake Forest and I was like really kind of over the corporate idea of medicine, I was like, you know what? Like I'm a nurse. They have inmates there that are sick. Why not try to do this? And so I just kind of started literally looking jail nursing there's a really severely distorted and inappropriate view of what kind of people even make up our prison system. (laughs) Society is so terrified of not even convicted criminals yet. And I felt for that. My brother growing up, my big brother, my hero, the one that taught me to be as much of a badass and an athlete as I like to claim I am. Um, (laughs) And he used to run the streets and was a gang member and was in and out of jail and prison and, You know, so I literally had it at home growing up where this just wasn't some POS human. This was my big brother. And then I kind of evolved into literally stepping in there and just being face to face with these people, not these criminals, these human beings. And I think right there, you're like, oh, there's work to be done here, you know, and I think that that's kind of why get into there and how how I got into it. I just felt this compassionate pull towards these people that are just overall traumatized individuals, you know, hurt people, hurt people. That's kind of what made me want to help them. Yeah. If you'd be willing, can we just kind of dive into some of the nuts and bolts of it? Like how does a shift start as a prison nurse? What happens when you get out of your car and get in there? Yeah. So even just the process of getting in there, whether it was when I was going in as a yoga instructor or as a nurse, Everything is locked down. One door doesn't open until another closes to prevent just like the constant flow of traffic. So I come in and the second door that I need to go in isn't going to open until the door behind me is closed. So say someone couldn't just walk right in with me, you know, everything is separated from the inmates. It's on a separate unit across the way from where the inmates are. So you're in a completely safe locked in area. You know, I worked night shifts. I would work 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And all of the inmates have the right to obtain medical care as a legality. They must be, you know, allowed that right. But as you can imagine, when they're there for X, Y, Z, 
all kinds of stuff might come into play and what medical conditions really need to be seen versus boredom versus attention seeking. And you, they get the option to write on a pink slip and to say, you know, here, here's my problem. They turn that into their unit or cell officer and then that gets turned into us. And again, it's our job to sift through those and see like, okay, this person writes a note literally four times a day. We got to put that to the bottom of the pile. Kind of just have to do a pretty instinctive triage um, to see who gets to come in first. Sometimes they do take priority and they come in quite quickly. Sometimes they have to wait. Sometimes it's like, okay, this person truly doesn't need to be seen. They can wait for weeks or maybe don't get seen. <laughs> we kind of chip away at that. And then the rest is Potentially when inmates come in or the new arrests come in, we get called down, whether it's intoxication, injuries from scuffles with or without police, you know, we kind of have to assess the need for if they need to get sent out to the hospital, if they're able to stay, if this is something that we can treat while they are here. And just kind of a constant flux of that. There's always something to do there, I guess. Is it an overwhelming workload I guess it, it sometimes can be, but especially at night shift for a good portion of the time, sometimes you're the only nurse, you're there by yourself. So it's like, I can only do so much. I can only be in one place at one time. And I would say that my emergency room background, the concept of triaging and like, you need to be seen now, you don't, I feel pretty strong with my assessment skills. So I don't know. It's not really that overwhelming. I guess it's, you get so used to it that it's like, I don't know, just a day in the life. Were you working in the men's jail, the women's jail, or did you serve both? Both. Yeah, when I when I volunteered and taught yoga, I was only in the pods with the women. But as a nurse, I was um, the entire jail, men and women. I guess I kind of wonder, like, on one hand, prisoners, and perhaps particularly prisoners in the evening, they're desperate to connect. Uh, on the other hand, uh, some of these prisoners, some of them, display behaviors that might make it kind of challenging to connect with them. I know you well enough to know that you are really good at connecting with others and bringing out the best in people. Can you just talk a little bit about connecting with people in jail? at night. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, thanks for that compliment. I mean, that, that that's a, a great way to be viewed. So I appreciate that. You're I, welcome. Like, I accept that compliment willingly because I've worked pretty hard at doing that to just try to provide, like I said, that safe space, you know, and I get involved in the, the nitty gritty, most intimate details of people's lives. Like, Hey, how are you doing? Please tell me about the last time that you used the bathroom. Like you, know, <laughs> you don't have this, like get to know each other phase a lot of the time. So it's kind yeah. of like being able <laughs> yeah. to, to read the room. And I'm like, I should try to keep that pretty PG because clearly we know lots of the circumstances get much more invasive than that. But I've done so much various research with like Brian Stevenson with the equal justice initiative and James Fox runs the prison yoga project. And I can talk more about that if you'd like, but Brian Stevenson talks about like people are so much more than the worst thing they've ever done. Yes. You are a domestic violence offender. You're a rapist. You're a whatever. There's a label so quick to point the finger. And so as a nurse, like 
I say this quite frequently, like whether it's in the ER, in the jail, like, dude, listen, I'm not the cops. I don't quite frankly care why you're in here because that's not my job. My job is to care for you, to be here, you know, and I don't say all this, but to invoke trust and good rapport and treating someone like they're human Oddly enough, it goes a long way (laughs) that immediately makes them either want to open up and me just having an approach to that. It makes me by no means naive because there are very evil people in this world and they do evil things for various reasons, which we don't need to get into that. But you get it. It's like there are some people that you cannot let your guard down at all. And I would say you have to always kind of have a little bit of, dare I say, common sense in terms of reading the situation. But Overall, it's like, you're a human, man. I'm not the cops. It's not my job to judge you. What's going on? Is it the case that when inmates visit the nurse's office, the nurse's station, that they are accompanied by a guard or two? Oh, 100%. I mean, depending on the crimes, there's certain levels of inmates where unless it was deemed absolutely medically necessary, they would come in shackled. They would have chains around their feet, up to their waist, around their hands, the entire assessment. So like I said, unless I said, hey, officer, like, you know, I need to whatever, get their shirt off or something along those lines to perform a medical exam, they wouldn't even be allowed to do that. And I never saw an inmate without an officer in the room or immediately outside the door. What was your relationship like with prison guards? Mm. So, um, you know, I, I hate to maybe seem like I'd be stereotyping because that's not how I roll, but I guess I would address the certain culture that exists within the jail system as far as I've seen, because I've, I've been in two jails, not as an inmate, but up close and personal (laughs) and just kind of the the demeanor of power structure and I'm better than you. There isn't any of that sitting beside I'm a human, you're a human. It's I'm the CO, you're the inmate, I'm in charge, you know, and and of course there's you must speak to like the necessity of establishing that sense of power structure. But we can all know when that gets to their head. And so I kind of just played it lightly where I was like, you know what, ultimately these guys are here to protect me if I need. And it's kind of nice because in that regard, speaking of power structure, when they come into like my stomping grounds as a nurse, what I say goes as a nurse, they were usually pretty effective and conducive to what I needed to do. You know, there was a few good ones that I really enjoyed working with. And a lot of them, just the way that they dealt with the inmates in general, got to be a little bit calloused and I think a big problem that is going on with our system but how they handled things as a nurse I would say they were pretty effective and I definitely always felt safe having a guard there. Given the prison dynamics as you came to learn about them and given your commitment to empathy was it hard for you to feel a genuine sense of respect for the COs? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Long story short, it's like, that's why I left. 
I did not leave that jail because of the inmates. I love the inmates and my work with the inmates. It was the absolute severely toxic work environment, the way that even the nursing staff, one of the most toxic nurses in the way that she spoke and just disgusting, honestly, like I couldn't even stand listening to the way that she spoke in general, um, especially about the inmates, you know, the epitome of like, when you see like people getting jaded, it's like, yep, that was her. This inmate comes in like, you know, and be like, oh, this mother is back or, oh, look at this stupid piece of shit. And it's like, what, what is wrong with you? Like, first yeah. of all, you don't know this person or if they are a repeat inmate, like, I'm sorry that there is something so miserable in your like you you treat people like that like I, the energy of that chick for sure but you know it's just like the epitome of jaded and like you know what get into a new profession dude because that's not what nursing is about or at least as far as I'm concerned so it got really difficult you know I try to practice like control what you can control but being around that constantly was ultimately why I left it was the most toxic work environment I've ever participated in and it sucked because. I really loved working with the inmates. Can you give me a sense of the extent to which and the ways in which your experiences with your brother who went through some tough times informed your sensibilities and your approaches towards working as a nurse in a jail? Not everyone is just this piece of shit criminal. I mean, especially now he's completely turned his life around, like between getting gang tattoos covered up, the ultra marathon running yoga, father of four, like night and day, you know, not statistically the norm, but it's like, uh, it was just going through a hard time. Not a piece of shit human, just good people do bad things. And we even grew up in a a very privileged state socioeconomically speaking where it's like and still my brother went through that stuff so it's like I can't even imagine so I, I do feel very empathetic and I think it absolutely did guide me to just have compassion for what people go through in life and even some of you know my own traumas that I've been through um, and how that dictated the way that I feel that oh there's a lot more behind what you see at face value I don't want to talk about your brother too much, but I just do have one pointed question that I can't resist, which is this. Sure. Having experienced what he experienced, how did he feel about your working in this heinous, toxic environment? Did he warn you away from it? Did he embrace your willingness to serve the way you did? What were his feelings about your choice? I don't want to say like, he didn't really care. It wasn't like a don't do it or like a, Oh, thank God you're going to be the grace that the jail system needs praise, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah. I would say, honestly, even I still want to know, like I want to do my own little podcast interview with my brother because there's a lot of stuff I do know, but I think that there's a lot of stuff that I don't know about even what he really went through because just like any veteran of any sorts of war. And I would absolutely consider the jail prison system, a form of war. Uh, he doesn't talk about it that much. Hmm. Kayla, I have had the 
pleasure of having a couple of nurses on the podcast. And I have come to learn that nursing in any circumstance can be really intense. And I know just enough to know that prisons, by their very nature, also are intense. Nursing in prison seems like a real emotional minefield. I guess I just wonder how you grappled with the sheer intensity of all of it. Like, how did you grapple with it? And did you have like a way to wind down from it? I would say that is kind of just how I run my life. I mean, you said literally like the word intense has come up a lot. And even on job interviews, no joke. If Oh, how would you, one word you'd describe yourself intense. Yeah. <laughs> like I have, that's my immediate intense ass answer. And for good reason. It's like, you know, I think one thing that I kind of live my life by is like, it's both a blessing and a curse to feel things so deeply. <laughs> so the empathic side of me and just working as a nurse, it's like, Ugh, sometimes it's so exhausting. Like, Oh my God, can't I just be like normal yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, but the super important thing first is for me to understand, like, why is it intense? And that could fluctuate on a day-to-day basis. Is this going to be a super emotionally intense day? Is this a super medically like, Oh my gosh, there's like trauma after trauma after serious injury. And I have to be in like autopilot saving lives. And granted that wasn't always the case, but you know, like that mode, Or is it my call to be more compassionate and empathetic and emotionally involved with the care that needed for nursing? So right there is the ball game of like, which one are we looking at? You know, like being in a prison, people are like, oh my gosh, aren't you scared working in a jail? No. Like, it's much scarier working in an emergency room, honestly. Like, inmates have a label above their head as why they're there. They have a potential court date or conviction looming. I'm never unsupervised. Like, where's the fear? Meanwhile, in the emergency room, an unknown stranger with an unknown history on unknown substances walks in without security and has nearly unlimited solo face-to-face access with me. You tell me. Like, (laughs) like, so I think it's a very kind of false sense of security that society likes to operate by to make themselves feel more comfortable, you know? So I was a million times more safe in the jail, um, in terms of physical safety. Like it can be really intense, um, emotionally for me, because I really think like as an empath, I soak up a lot of that stuff. And so you ask, how do I wind down from that? And it's like, for sure. Yoga. I mean, saved me from myself well before I even became a nurse just kind of feel your feels is kind of my big thing. Like, wow, that was like an, a, a really emotional day or my God, my feet are literally throbbing and I need to go and do like legs up the wall and literally put my feet up a wall or take a hot shower or come home and cry my eyes out. Like, and just kind of going with the flow of all of that intensity and just making sure I'm like feeling my feels and having people around you that understand, I would say is the hugest part because nursing is a jacked up career, man. Like we are not normal. I am the first one to admit that (laughs) the stuff we do, the stuff we see, the stuff we talk about, none of it's normal. And I don't expect my people to understand it, but I do require that they at least hold space for me to process it, you know? 
I can't help but wonder about how you can feel your feels and then get back in there for the next shift and then do it again and do it again. Can you teach me a little bit about how to do that and to maintain your center and your sense of self-worth and your sense of dignity? Really, in a job that is constantly having so many intense moments, again, whether they're mentally, physically, emotionally, psychosocially, with coworkers, with patients, with doctors, with power struggle, like you could turn around and there could constantly be something is I've really tried and learned very often the hard way of anything that evokes an even more intense emotion out of me evokes, okay, what do I have to learn from here? How can I be better here? What is this like innate gut reaction trying to tell me? Kayla, like, don't, don't, don't be rude. Like be more compassionate. You are a compassionate person. Don't, don't judge this person. Making sure that every time I approach my patients, it's not from the aspect of I'm a nurse, you're my patient. Because you know what, man, we're all healing from something. Um, it could be uh, just before you came into work or the ER as the patient, you know, it could be old childhood traumas. And I think that just being there and showing up every day and getting on people's level and letting them know like, hey, man, it's all going to be okay. Here's some of the tools that I've used to get through it. I hear you. I support you. I believe you. All of the things that I do to help heal people in whatever it is that they're needing healing from or tending to that day goes out of my mouth and make sure that it comes right back in my own ears because so frequently the practicing what you preach thing has been very healing and cathartic for me. And I've gotten through some of my worst anxiety days, depressed feeling days by kind of not ignoring my crap, but putting it aside, being empathic, stepping into the shoes of someone else, and it doesn't minimize or change mine. It just sheds a different light, a different perspective. And you know what? Like we're all in this together and my patients heal me a lot of the time, just as much as I can help heal them. Yeah. I love that response. Thank you so much, Kayla. In that response, you were saying that you you hear people and you support people and you believe them, you believe in them. You meet people where they are. And that is an absolutely essential component for helping people to deal with addictive behaviors. While you were working in the Kenosha County Jail, and I get the sense perhaps sometime thereafter, you were working at an addiction treatment program. Can you tell me a little bit about the goals and the strategies and the tactics of the addiction treatment program? Yeah, for sure. And I I mean, I have a Zoom interview next week to go back to that place because I loved it so much. The only reason I left is to do travel nursing. But 
Um, so my official answer would be the Lake County Health Department. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? To, to, their goal is to achieve the highest level of health for all of those who live, work, and play in Lake County. Like <laughs> had that drilled into my head. Uh-huh. The ATP, it's the Addiction Treatment Program. It's an inpatient 24-hour detox and or rehab facility, mostly serving heroin and alcohol is the most common. And there's six detox beds, 16 rehab beds. Some people are like, you know what? I just need to detox and get clean and then I'm good. Some people come in for detox. They're like, nope, I don't want to feel this way. And they dip out and go right back out to get drunk or high. Some people have had to detox in jail, which again is the reason there's a need for nursing in jail because, and I think that's even really important is to be very aware of the extreme parallels of the idea of working at the addiction treatment program and within a jail. They are essentially the same exact concept, just under different circumstances. So many of the inmates that would come from Lake County Jail as kind of part of their time or to maybe reduce their sentence or whatever would come and electively, this is a completely voluntary program would electively say like, Hey, I want to go do the 28 days of rehab. And some people come in drunk or high, go through the detox process, transition right over to the rehab process and get discharged, you know? And then of course there's the recidivism, just like there is in the jail. There's addicts that keep on, keep on trying to get clean. And so just working with that, and in addition, there's ATP and CCP, which is the crisis care program. Um, I take care of both. And the crisis care program just happens to be more mental health specific. These people are struggling with more specific mental health issues that do not include drug addiction. So I do both, but 24 hours um, inpatient counseling, nursing is always available. There's activities, groups, different lead activities, stuff like that. And the goal is to really just, you know, there's always the counselors and they have one-on-one sessions and develop a little bit more of autonomy. And sometimes it can be as simple as just getting them to take care of themselves physically. Like, no, you will take a shower today, you know, getting back to the basics of stuff that really doesn't matter when people are out seeking whatever they're seeking drug-wise. So there's various levels of the intensity of the program, people's commitment to it, but it's awesome. I love it. I'm really excited to go back and work there. <laughs> I am excited for you. I want to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah. I guess on the most basic level, I wonder what the role of the nurse is in getting people through addiction treatment. I mean, we have administrators there, we have therapists and counselors. How do you nurse people through addiction treatment? Just by being there. I know that that sounds stupid, but just being there, being real, holding space. Because in my opinion, the real reason people are getting in so much trouble and the real reason people are doing drugs is trauma. Trying to escape whatever it is that they're dealing with. I mean, my approach is a hundred percent letting them know again, that they matter and that healing is possible. Like basic human shit. Like I'm here. I don't judge you. I don't just think you're a piece of shit addict. 
they are so stigmatized by society as being, oh, they just have no self-control. Like, okay, get over yourself. Come on. You know, there is so much more that goes into it. You know, I go into the the lunchroom with them. I sit down at their tables with them. I make inside jokes with them. Of course, there is the need to maintain my professional boundaries, which I do, but I'm still a human and I'm going to just belly up to the table with you and treat you like a peer and somebody who's deserving of that kind of attention. And again, it opens up the door and the trust and the the rapport that I have with the patients. And that inevitably completely makes a difference in how I'm able to do my job because I'm not just standing behind the nursing desk, passing out pills like a freaking robot. And some people do that. It drives me nuts, but (laughs) I know, Hey, this person who's here for alcohol addiction, they weren't at lunch or when they were at lunch, they couldn't put the glass of apple juice to their mouth because they were shaking so bad. I know that that immediately influences my medical treatment because I'm seeing them in their daily lives and how they're operating. I'm seeing their mood. I'm seeing how they appear. That's a full-on assessment 24 hours a day. And so just jumping into the trenches, if you will, um, gives me a ton of information. Even being there, you know, my favorite thing one time is this girl said, oh my God, like, where were you six years ago? And I was like, Um, totally being an alcoholic, super anxious, depressed by myself and dealing with a ton of my old trauma. And they were kind of like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm on this side of the door now, but I know what it's like to be at the very desperate side of knowing I need and want to heal and feel better regardless of what it's from. So I know how you feel. I'm not just a nurse, but I actually do know what they're going through. In theory, that helps facilitate their healing. Yeah. Can you explain in no uncertain terms what it means to be dope sick? Yeah. I mean, uh, think of any liquid coming out of any surface of your body. (laughs) Sweat coming out of your pores. Incessant vomiting. Having diarrhea the way that it physiologically works is, you know, your brain has these receptors that are constantly being filled with these lovely little opiate deals that again, reduce our sensation of pain, gets that euphoric feeling, how much you do, of course, too much, you stop breathing. But when that is taken away, your body is addicted to it. It's going to crave it. And so the symptoms that are going to be a result of it you know, opiates calm down your GI tract. So when you take them away, your GI tract or your intestines speed up, there's the diarrhea, all different kinds of, they're called mu receptors within your entire body are kind of triggered and on the fritz. And so people will often come in body cramping, muscle cramping, vomiting, diarrhea, sweating uncontrollably, feeling insanely anxious and agitated, quite pissed off, frankly, wanting to get high (laughs) goosebumps on their skin. So like that sweat chill kind of factor, they're miserable, man. They feel like shit. Even just telling, dude, I know you feel like you're going to die, but I promise you, I will not let that happen. I say that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it is very life and death to dope sick people. Every day gets a little easier, at least physiologically speaking, 
after how many days can a deeply dope sick patient begin to breathe a little easier and feel a little more human? So it depends a little bit the extent of their withdrawals, for sure. How much heroin, for example, or pills. It's so often heroin starts out as pills, but how much heroin, for example, they're using a day will definitely determine how long they're dope sick and will influence the type of treatment that they get. We kind of have resolved to stop using Suboxone, which is kind of... A replacement therapy where it acts as an opioid antagonist, where it like fills up those receptors and doesn't allow actual opiates to attach to those receptors, I guess is the best way to say it physiologically. So that can kind of determine how their recovery goes. If we're just symptom management, you know, it's a few days maybe because we really just try to manage the symptoms of anxiety, muscle relaxant, anti-nausea medicine, anti-kind of bubble gut medication, pushing as much fluids, Gatorade, water, electrolyte replacement, and just general nutrition. Because when you're trying to do heroin and get high, that's all you care about. And so very basic nourishment, such as just hydration and food goes out the window. And so we're not even just recovering medically from the withdrawal of the medication, we're also having very much to deal with depletion of so many systems within the human body. So the first few days are without a doubt the worst. And if it helps, our detox program is six days long. So in theory, that would be kind of an ideal transition. Sometimes that does get extended and that's just physiologically, you know, Right. The mental aspect. It's like, I don't know, do they ever get healed from that? Once an addict, always an addict is kind of a thing. Yeah. I just have one more question about your role as a nurse in the addiction treatment program at Lake County. You had used the term holding space. And I wonder what it means to you to hold space for dope sick people it might not make sense but like not always trying to fix them (laughs) is sometimes kind of what holding space i think means okay you are on edge feeling like death like i'm not gonna have all these maybe expectations which is the root of all heartache anyway (laughs) but i'm not gonna try to dictate how they act. My only job really is to get them to stay. If you really think about it. So maybe that's what the holding space is. What do you need to stay? And if that's like TLC, a little ass kissing and babying or tough love, you know what, man, like enough is enough. Like knock it off. Let's get this, get up, go eat your dinner. I'm not going to just let you lay here all day. It can vary. Um, And I think, I know you feel like you're going to die. I just won't let you. I say that so often. Again, that's the equivalent of their emergency. And so just acknowledging that. Oh, you're going to be fine. Don't, no, they don't feel that way. So me saying that is completely useless. And in fact, degrading. 
because right. now they don't have a trust in me that I have any idea what the hell I'm talking about. So just letting them feel their feels. Kayla, it sounds like you brought your whole self to the addiction treatment program. Actually, it kind of sounds like you love it. I have to ask, you also left it. Why? So yeah, that was actually like a hard decision when COVID hit. Our last day was March 26th. And they just said like, no more appliance. So everybody was discharged regardless of where they were at in the process, which was a really hard hit. Mm. Then just within the health department in no specific terms, we were just kind of allocated to other parts within the department. You know, like we weren't fired. ATP was done working as the inpatient unit. But then, you know, I did a little bit of stuff, uh, clerical paperwork kind of stuff that I have zero interest in doing. I worked yeah. a little bit at the methadone clinic, helping pass out methadone, which was at least a little bit close to what I was doing. Then they had me doing like COVID tests and specimen. And I was like the runaround girl, the task woman. And I did all kinds of stuff, which was really great in terms of the teamwork aspect but then I would lovingly say like, blah, blah, blah. Like I want to work with my clients. I'm a nurse for a reason. And yeah. so that was ultimately why I had to make the decision to end up going because the restart of the program just kept getting pushed back and back and back. And I'm like, uh, okay, I can't, I can't keep waiting in this limbo anymore. Yeah. Well, listen, I need to say, Good luck with your interview. It sounds like there's a real good chance that you'll be back working at the addiction treatment program again sooner than later, and they'd be fools not to have you back. But now you're out doing something that I, frankly, was not even aware of. You are a travel nurse. So what is a travel nurse? <laughs> and how does one become a travel nurse? So essentially what a traveling nurse is... It's like a substitute player. I step in. Okay, you don't need me anymore. And then I can leave. So a fill-in, basically. There's always holes to be filled. And systemically, there's just always a nursing shortage, it seems. The staffing ratios and all that stuff is always kind of a constant battle. There's so many patients and not enough people to appropriately take care of them. So enter travelers. <laughs> yeah. So how do you get the gig? What do you do? You like go to a website and you can pick places that you want to go to and you apply. What's the application? Yeah. Process? So there's thousands of agencies. Basically, it's like I'm a superstar and I have an agent, if you will. They okay. are kind of the ones who do the work for me. There's tons of agencies that have all various recruiters. Different agencies have different contracts with certain hospitals a lot of word of mouth. You can look on Facebook groups, all kinds of stuff to actually find out how you want to get there. I would recommend word of mouth because you know someone who used this recruiter and they were good for them. But then I joke and I say like, I'm like the Julia Roberts and pretty woman of nursing. I get to say who I say when, and I say how much. <laughs> um, okay. But really it's like, that is the case. I'm with Sunbelt Staffing. My guy is Ron. I say, you know, even now I'm like, I kind of want to come home. I say, what are some jobs that are around the Chicagoland area? And he starts letting me know, oh, there's this for this many hours a week for this pay. Do you want me to submit? And then he'll basically submit my resume and application and whatever. And I say, yes or no. He doesn't get paid unless I get paid. I would say a fairly standard and average 
contract length is 13 weeks, but everything is subject to change, especially now. So it, yeah. it offers a lot of liberty. Nurses are very much in demand. As you said, everything is in flux. Can you successfully negotiate for, you know, 20 or 30% more than they initially offer you? Or is it a pretty firm offer, economically speaking? At baseline, traveling nursing makes more money than I would make as a staff nurse. Just hands down, the nature of the business is that it makes more. When you do have offers, there's always negotiating room a little bit. But to say that I'm some prized possession, I know I have a lot of skill and that I'm a great nurse, but you know what? I'd be completely ignorant to not think that so do the other 15 people or 100 people that applied for that job. So it depends a little bit maybe how desperate they are, how much competition there is. I would say kind of like with any job, they have an offer. It probably won't change much from that offer. And that's when I get to say yes or absolutely not. I don't want to settle for that price. And then that's my choice. So take it or leave it. And how many have you taken so far? How many about three-month contracts have you taken thus far? Let's see. I did Chicago. Right when COVID hit, actually, that's how I got into a traveling agency. The traveling agency I worked through contracted with the city of Chicago for the emergency response COVID team when McCormick Place and all that stuff was piling up and they were preparing for the big COVID scare. Then I went to Gulfport, Mississippi for just about three months. Then I went to Clovis, New Mexico for three months. And now I'm currently in Taos, New Mexico. I wonder what it feels like to show up, say, in Taos or somewhere in Mississippi that I've never heard <laughs> of, and you don't know anyone, and you have to work in a field that demands really intense concentration and perfectly orchestrated teamwork. So what's it like to do that? Show up, you don't know anyone, and you have to work with everyone like day one. A lot of my entire life growing up as an athlete kind of prepares you for that. Like I show up at a summer camp or a training thing and it's like, oh, hey, here's these five people go and play a basketball game. It's a different type of perfectly orchestrated teamwork. I know the game. I know it well. I take over when I need to. I defer when I need to. Nursing is literally a science. Science is science and nursing is nursing basically everywhere. I'm a really social outgoing person, as you very well know. Um, and as a nurse in general, it's my job to walk up to complete strangers and hit the ground running, forming a trusting bond, working side by side, establishing that rapport, as we've already discussed. So one job, I got a four hour orientation. <laughs> one job I got. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> like the first four hours of my shift. And then they were like, hey, take six patients. And I'm like, Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. it's like, that's overwhelming, but you know what? It's challenging. It's change that like constant setting of change, challenging, learning on the fly, being exposed to new people, learning where my insecurities or fears might be. I'm always open and willing. And again, sometimes to my exhausting demise, trying to better myself. <laughs> and yeah. so constantly being exposed to changing stuff like that. It's freaking awesome, man. You just kind of roll the punches and like, I know I'm a good nurse. I'm a strong nurse. Let's do it. Learn as I go. Fake it till you make it sometimes. But then you always have support. And in theory, the goal of everybody is to take care of the patient. So 
we're all there with the same goal. On one hand, you are providing relief and a much needed service to stressed and strained institutions. On the other hand, your fellow nurses probably know that you are getting paid X percent more than them and you are there for a limited time. Is there resentment? Eh. Or is it all just welcoming? I would say I've been really lucky that I have been very welcomed overall. Because again, like I kind of told you, the concept of a traveling nurse is there is a need. And, you know, I've worked in hospitals where I've had travelers come in. Of course, there are certain people, but I think that that would be regardless of if you're a traveler, you know, like they're mean to the new kid. Like, I'm not sure what the hell your problem is or why you're hating on me, but I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with me. I've definitely experienced that. Like this happened at this hospital. I just introduced myself to you 10 seconds ago, literally. And now we're working a code. So I know your insane attitude right now can't be about me because I literally have never interacted with you. (laughs) I try to separate that stuff, but overall there is a need and I'm there. So having me in theory is better for them than not, because again, it helps with the staffing ratios. They might be able to have less patients. They might not have to pick up mandatory overtime, et cetera. So Overall, I think that's generally the consensus. You'll always have your few stick-in-the-mud people, but overall, it's been pretty great. Our listeners have to know that not only are you a traveling nurse, you are a traveling nurse in an RV with (laughs) your new fiancé. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, RV life as a nurse. So you show up for a challenging shift. You put in these 12-hour shifts. Are you working days or nights right now? Nights. So you're working nights in the (laughs) desert. It's challenging. It's probably overwhelming. It's corona times. Everything's a little topsy-turvy right now. And then you have to somehow recoup and recover in a camper with a dude and two cats. (laughs) I don't know that I have a question, so I'll just be like, how's that going? <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> hanging out in the desert with a dude and two cats. It's, life is pretty sweet. So um, it's like, why, why, why do I even do this? Like, adventure, man. You know, like I said, I have the luxury of kind of saying who, what, when, where. That's autonomy. The idea of the Monday through Friday, nine to five stuff literally makes me cringe. Like, woof. I have no desire to do that. And then I would say life is pretty great because everything is so much more simplistic. You know, I have a nice town home back home, plenty of space. I love my home. And now I'm in this 23 foot, my fiance and I face to face, ass to ass, like sliding past the, the dinette set and the stove. So it forces a very different perspective of gratitude and you focus on priorities, you make a point of that. And you know, when I'm on the road, I have work and whatever the hell else I want to do. (laughs) And that's an amazing life. Back home, it was, I teach three yoga classes a week. I play volleyball four nights a week. I work three, four, five, six shifts a week. Then I have family. Then I have friends. It's insane. And so it's like, You get to breathe and chill and just do you. 
That's awesome. So you're out there in Taos in the camping van. This has come up on the podcast before, and I feel I would be remiss if I didn't pose this question to you. Particularly in this pandemic, nurses are often glorified as heroes. I wonder how you react to the hero moniker. It's annoying. (laughs) My initial reaction is like, dude, we're doing the same stuff we've always done. And now society and media just told you to care about it. Or maybe it affected you specifically. And so now you choose to care. My day-to-day life as a nurse really hasn't changed. Every single day, we don't know what's walking in our door. There's TB, there's C. diff, there's HIV, there's hep C, there's stuff that we're exposed to every single day that can be life-threatening. I don't want to say like, and nobody seems to care because it makes me sound like jaded or a little hostile, but in the the face of being called like a hero, it's like, uh, so you didn't care then, but now you do, or especially patients quite literally cursed us out, spat in our faces, beat us up. The system as a whole, I think, needs an entire reboot. You know, I listen to Z-Dog MD a lot. He's a doctor and very much advocates for the nursing field. And he did a really good one about what's being called burnout. You're hearing nurses being burnt out. And he's like, what it really is, is moral injury. And the difference between those two is that not feeling supported by upper management, terrible staffing ratios, not getting breaks, all of these things calling it burnout is almost like a slap in the face where the moral injury and the lack of support is the real virus (laughs) that kind of plagues the nursing environment at least. And so to be called heroes, it's like not cool. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hero or not, you meet people where they are. You revel in the intensity of it. You demonstrate peak empathy And I respect you immensely for it. And that should be enough. But I have to ask you, can you please share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And if you would be so kind, begin with the failure so that we could end appropriately, I should say, on a note of triumph. Of course, the biggest failures are like when you don't save patients. We do encounter death very frequently. Being surrounded by death, knowing that medically there's nothing you can do. Sometimes that feeling of helplessness or tragic accidents happen. Pedestrians getting run over in the street, literally blown out of their shoes. This young girl flipped over in an ATV the other day and died on impact. And I think most importantly, when you're exposed, as we've discussed, to so many intense things, really recognizing that anytime there is a failure, that you're not starting from scratch, you're starting from experience. In my niche of addiction treatment, they relapsed. This one guy is a few years older than me. I said, you know, why are you doing heroin? And he says, huh, wow, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I'm like, what? So that, like, I will never forget because he just stood there and he said, I don't know, probably guilt and shame. 
And I even just get goosebumps saying it now because he was such a sweet soul. And he would always be up in the middle of the night at ATP and, and uh, I would be speaking with him and, oh, he was just on such a right path until he was found dead with a heroin needle in his arm in his halfway house. Mm. And it's just like, oh, you know, um, so those are, I guess I would say those failures, but losing someone is severely emotional. There's a lot of failure if you really look, but there's also a lot of good, which we're going to move on to next. <laughs> yeah. I can, I say though, I'm, uh, I'm sorry you, you lost them and I'm sure that you've seen good people who you've had genuine connections with suffer painful fates and, uh, I'm I'm sorry that you lost him and I'm sorry that you have to deal with loss in the ways that you do. But yeah. I always appreciate that sentiment, but it's like, I also know I signed up for that. And as much as those are the failures again, and this is where I'll kind of even roll it into the story of triumph. I now have that guy as an example, because in the addiction facility, when I'm working, I say, guys, listen, okay. This was on his last day. We had a little pizza party. This was his last day of rehab. And it was right around Thanksgiving time. And I challenge all the clients to go around and say like, what's something you're grateful for? And they would say really simple, you know, family, sobriety, friends, God, my kids, whatever. And I'll never forget the chair this guy was sitting in. He said, I'm grateful that I never have to shoot heroin again. And now he's dead. It's often a very powerful repurposing. It shows that the struggle is real, but I really triumph and relish in the micro victories. Nursing can seem like a deplorable shit show where it's just people die and it's negative and this is what you have to do in this struggle and stress. And even if it's one out of every, however many you want to make the pool that we save, one out of a hundred, somehow it still makes it completely worth it. it. It really is true. You know, that concept of like, if I help one person yeah, and yeah. like the wonderful Maya Angelou, you know, people forget what you did, what you said. Okay. You might've saved their life, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But also they'll never forget how you made them feel. I just feel grateful that I'm allowed to have the nurse platform or power, if you will, to be able to get up close and personal with the nitty gritty aspects of people's lives within like 10 seconds of meeting them. I get notes written to me, you know, like on my fridge, like a suicidal 15 year old girl that wrote me a note thanking me for taking the time to talk to her that said, you made me feel like healing is possible. Then I've done my job or I have inmates <laughs> that passed a note to a CEO who gave it to me because they knew I was leaving. Otherwise that's frowned upon, but it was a note that all of the female inmates wrote. Thank you for treating me like I mattered. And that has nothing to do with nursing or the addictive clients that are now still sober or will write me a note, you know, a Facebook message or something and will never forget the day that I brought them into the facility. I keep notes of that stuff, whether it's notes that they give me or I have kind of like a little bit of a journal because when you're really feeling down in the dumps, those micro victories, those aren't the things that make headlines and make the news and miraculous saving of this blah 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 but those are the things that really 
completely do the silver lining on my soul, if you will, of this whole profession, no matter how dark it is. It's like, I have some of those things and those interactions and those personal face-to-face moments and the hugs even that no one can take away. And that is a thousand percent why I'm a nurse just in my blood. It's a life kind of mission. Well, Kayla, I very much appreciate and I respect your mission. I totally dig your willingness to be vulnerable, your capacity to be empathic. Congratulations again on your engagement. Thanks for being here, Kayla. Thank you so much for having me and for inquiring into the depths and nooks and crannies of the multifacets of nurse life and just showing a genuine interest and through podcasts like this and just genuine inquiries and investigations that the more we learn about each other, the better off we all are. So thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share a little bit about my world. Right on. We did it. All right. (laughs) All right, my friends, that was Kayla and I in conversation. She's amazing, isn't she? I recall being so fond of her when she was a student and a student athlete. The sheer intensity of that kid in the classroom, on the basketball court, on the volleyball court, a sight to behold. And we hadn't kept in touch. I always kind of wondered if she landed on her feet. So after we wrapped up, we just kept on talking and I was kind of asking her how she was doing. And as often happens in our post-interview discussions, some important stuff emerges. What follows is a dialogue that Kayla and I had, which I think is essential to her story. And so I reached out to her and I asked her if it was okay if I included this. And she was 100% game. But I should offer a trigger warning. Kayla dives into some of her trauma here in no uncertain terms. And while it is central to her story, just take the fair warning for what it is. And to reward you for your continued interest in Kayla's journey, we're going to wrap up this episode with the title track from Sun Jacket's hot new release. It's called More Lifelike. Now, Kayla, you had brought up Brian Stevenson, who writes and speaks on restorative justice. And I've uh, read one of his books, and I'm very interested in this project. Brian Stevenson speaks with a clear-eyed focus on empathy and kindness and grace and building bridges. And so much of what you were talking about in our discussion really echoes the themes that he focuses on. You must feel really connected to Brian Stevenson. Oh my God. I love him. Like (laughs) it feels like his words are like plucking out of my soul. Like, Oh my God, you finally gave me a way to articulate that with the grace and like positive perspective. Cause it, everything he's talking about terrible shit, the upswing of hope that like falls on every word that he says is awesome. And I think that's, I just, I love him, you know, with addicts and the whole 
um, approach to, to dealing with them. We get so many in the emergency room too. And just the other day, and this has happened a ton before where there's an overwhelming sense that like they will be judged by med- medical professionals. You know, this guy said to me, he's like, well, I know you guys all judge addicts. And I was like, hold up, dude. I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there. Like, You're more than the worst thing you've ever done. The healing yeah. is possible and the recovery from it is possible with tons of investigation and self-exploration and stuff. I love Brian Stevenson. Me too. On a very loosely related note, some of the themes that you touched on remind me of the work of Stephen Hayes. Are you familiar with Stephen Hayes? I don't believe so. He is perhaps the founder of acceptance and commitment therapy. It's really steeped in um, like radical behaviorism. It's tied to mindfulness. One of the takeaways from my years reading Stephen Hayes is this challenge that he offers his clients to know when to give agency and give voice to the thoughts that are going through their head and knowing when to disinvite those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So like we all have, let's say, a negative thought. Perhaps it's a shameful moment. Perhaps it's a trauma. It's the inner roommate. (laughs) Yeah. And it's sort of knowing when to let the inner roommate speak. And like sometimes, you know, the roommates constantly knocking, constantly making noise. And there are times and places to be like, okay, it's you. I know what you're going to say. I know how it's going to make me feel. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm going to let you, right? I'm out for a run. Yeah, I'm going to let you sort of infiltrate my consciousness. But then being able to, at another time in your day or your week, be like, you know what? I, I let you talk the other day. I didn't like it that much. I know you're just going to say the same thing again. It's going to make me feel the same way again. So you're not invited right now. Don't worry. I'll let you back in. But if you could just go the fuck away for, for mm-hmm. now, because I'm trying to have like a nice dinner <laughs> yeah. with my partner or with my colleagues or whatever. And I was thinking about when you were talking about some of the more intense thoughts and feelings you have vis-a-vis your work if this type of approach is something that you end up without maybe knowing who Stephen Hayes is using because you've grappled intensely and frequently with highly traumatic situations and you've had some trauma yourself And you seem to have either instinctually and or through reading and study and mindfulness and yoga, you seem to have cultivated some real perspective in terms of how to grapple with all that. So I think, honestly, that's the part where I say, like, it's a blessing and a curse to feel things so deeply or, you know, like I kind of always battle with that. There's times where it's like, hey, like, can you just chill the fuck out and like just be like I sometimes exhaust myself. There was even something that I meant to say for sure on the podcast, but also didn't want to like get too much in. But I saved this piece of paper that is jotted down in green highlighter from this like 
crazy, depressed, drunken night that I had. And it said, maybe I got into a career of trying to help others because I felt I could never really help myself. Hmm. You know, when I first started healing, it was from sexual abuse as a kid. Not like I'm over that, but I think growing up, having that be like my trauma, you know, you walk around to a restaurant, you could say, Hey man, what's your trauma? What's your trauma? What's your trauma? Everyone has a fucking answer. I very intimately dealt with that grapple my whole life. Now I've become very proud of like, I am a badass bitch. Like the resilience that I've cultivated, it, it absolutely has led to my empathy because I know what it's like to be like this privileged little white girl and still struggle. And that's how I've lived my entire life. My abuse happened when I was five. Well, and then again, when I was 13 and again, as a teenager and, you know, all kinds of other shit, but the big one happened when I was five, that absolutely completely changes your consciousness. My ability to be like a hard ass, badass, don't fuck with me kind of girl is very much based on the survival tactics and defense mechanisms I needed until I was able to break those walls down and then start to heal from that shit. I clearly was meant to help heal other people, I think. <laughs> it's like, fuck, like, I just, <laughs> I want a day off from trying to heal all the things. Like, sometimes I wish I just didn't care, but, and, you know, that's also just not who I am. Decided man.